Let's talk about relationships, namely the one with Lord Sugar. He'll often send me an email and it'll just say, there's trouble coming our way. There was a chance that the BBC would pull The Apprentice over it. We went to bed that night, like, not together, I should add. Um, I felt like I was going to have a brain hemorrhage. That's Andrew Block, the marketing genius behind Lord Sugar and founder of one of the UK's number one PR agencies, Frank. In this episode, Andrew reveals what it's really like working with Lord Sugar. Just continue working and working and working because I think without it, it'd be a bit lost. The number one way to go viral with PR. The best PR people, they know how to weave a brand into popular culture and basically become part of that conversation. And humour is one way to do it. Controversy is another. Sex always sells. If you can, you're guaranteed to sell out that product. Behind the scenes secrets to some of the world's most famous marketing campaigns. Came up with this concept probably while drunk. Meerkat sounds a little bit like market. Yeah. And that was the starting point of what has become a very, very famous campaign. <laughs> and loads more. Will this get us a fine? Will it get us a ban? Will it land us in prison? You know, sometimes the answer to all three of those questions is yes. If you want to learn from one of the world's best PR experts, you're not going to want to miss this. Hey guys, if you get value and enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and let me know what you think in the comments. Let's dive in. Andrew, thank you so much for doing this. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You are an immensely successful PR person, connector, agency owner. You started one of the UK's number one PR agencies, Frank. You sold it for eight figures. You are an advisor to Lord Sugar, and I think you've been for like 10, 20 years. 23. 20, not that I'm counting. 23, not <laughs> that you're counting. And I think there's a lot of value that you can give to people listening. So I'd love this to be a bit of a PR masterclass, and then maybe with some entrepreneurial uh, insights as well. I'll do my best. Let's start with what is PR? for anyone listening who, who's confused or, or doesn't know what it is or should be? PR is a f essentially is about affecting a brand, a person, an individual's reputation. Typically, PR is earned communication, so you're not paying for those placements. I think everyone knows the power of third-party endorsement is the most powerful endorsement in the world. You know, unlike an ad that you see and you know, you know, you can buy a page in the sun, an ad in the middle of I'm a Celebrity, um, say whatever you want within, you know, regulations. You can't lie, but you can pretty much. With PR, you're earning that endorsement. And most of the time, someone else is talking about you on your behalf, which carries with it a lot of weight. But good PR has to create talkability. You have to be able to get word of mouth going. So effectively, that word of mouth is doing your best marketing for you. And when you get it right, completely can transform the reputation of a company. It can increase awareness, it can change perception, it can limit damage. You know, a lot of PR is about reputational work. It can lobby for change. So there's a lot of purpose-driven. PR is a big buzz area at the moment. So it's it's limitless in terms of what it can achieve. But everyone needs PR, even if they don't think they do. Yeah. And I think the in the in the world we live in today, I think you you talk a lot about there being a lot of noise and that like reach is cheap. What do you what do you mean when you when you talk about that? It's easier now than ever to just reach huge audiences at the click of a button. You can reach a million people, ten million people, a hundred million people. Doesn't mean that message is going to get through. I mean, you know this as a consumer. Anyone watching this will know as a consumer. You know, we doom scroll through you know hundreds and hundreds of bits of content a day. We leave the house and we're bombarded by advertising on bus stops on coffee cups you know as you walk up the tube you know everywhere you go there's commercial messages and as consumers we've built up these sort of bullshit buffers to deflect that advertising we don't even notice it's happening the job of great pr is to infiltrate and penetrate those buffers so you sit up and you take notice and you create this talkability where ideally you're seeing something and you're telling a mate you're sharing it you're commenting on it creating engagement um and that requires creativity to cut through. You know, if you just do what everyone else is doing and you're conventional and you're boring, no one's ever going to notice. You have to be disruptive to break through and create attention. Yeah. And you've 
been involved in some iconic campaigns. I'm thinking uh, Compare the Meerkat, HP Source. Can you take us into maybe like the HP example, what you did and the impact that good PR can have? Sure. I mean, HP Source, I mean, amazingly, that campaign is coming up for 20 years old and people still remember it. And HP Source, Brown Source, you know, we all love it with our fry-ups. Some people don't love it. Um, was a brief that came to us at our agency and it was, I think the best PRs will always challenge a brief, but it was, you know, we want to increase the usage occasions of HP Source. People have it on a fry-up, but they don't think about it for anything else. How can we get people to use it more? So we were like, you know, started off and we're looking at like recipe ideas and getting chefs. To, we're like, this is boring. You know, people love HP Source. It's a great, iconic British brand. But let's face it, it's great with sausage and beans and eggs, but not really anything else. So actually the challenge is let's build an emotional connection, get people to think about it more. Because if you think about HP Source, you're more likely to have an additional fry up and to consume it more, to buy a bottle and put it in your cupboard. So... We started off looking at British things, things that were iconic. We stumbled across the sport of snooker, one of the most British sports in the world. I won't give you a history lesson in <laughs> snooker. Um, yeah. And we were like, wouldn't it be cool if we could sponsor a ball in snooker? Obviously, the brown ball. And so we went out and we spoke to the World Snooker Organization, the governing body for the sport. And we're like, can we sponsor a, a ball? Like, no one's ever done it, but... You know, you could do with the money, all the tobacco sponsorship is sort of dead now. You need to bring money into the sport. You need to show you're modern, you're interesting. Somehow or other, and I can't take the credit for this, it was a girl called Tracy Zetta, who I work with, that persuaded the world's yeah. synchronism that we could sponsor a ball, have a logo on the Bramble, never, ever been done in history. And we were very happy with ourselves. The client yeah. couldn't believe it. because sort of, When yeah. we pitched this idea, they were like, well, great idea. If you can make it happen, we'd do it. But we're not holding our breath. So we got that done and then we were like, okay, we've got to, there's got to be like the next level to this. So one of the greatest players in snooker history, Jimmy White, real legend of the game, sort of in the twilight stages of his career, although he's still playing 20 years later, so maybe not, but at the time we yeah. thought he was. We approached him and asked him if he would consider changing his name from Jimmy White to Jimmy Brown to commemorate this deal. He loved it and he thought it was the funniest thing ever. So we properly changed his name. It wasn't just a gimmick. We got it changed by deed poll. Jimmy White became Jimmy Brown for the tournament. And we had him all dressed up in a brown suit with a brown bow tie with a little HP splat. No logos. No, it was very subtle. Um, but we knew we had to create a bit of attention around it. So what we decided to do was wind up the broadcasters of the tournaments. This is a tournament that goes out on the BBC. It goes out on Sky. So we got our lawyers to write a letter to all of the broadcasters, to all of the media, saying our client, Jimmy White, has changed his name legally by Depol. He's now Jimmy Brown. We need you to refer to him by this name for the duration of the Masters tournament. Otherwise, he will refuse to appear. And the broadcasters completely sort of played into our hands as we hoped and kind of knew that they would. Yeah. And they came back and they were, we can't do this. It's commercial. It breaches ITC regulations and got the lawyers to write back again. So there's no breach. You know, there's no brand. It's just, a, we just changed his name. There's no, nothing commercial about this. And anyway, they were all sort of getting their necks in the twist. It was getting tons and tons and tons of press coverage. And in the end, I think one of the broadcasters I think it was Sky or Eurosport, decided that they wouldn't call him Jimmy White. They wouldn't call him Jimmy Brown. They would call him The Whirlwind, which was his nickname. Mm -hmm. um, and every time he sort of went on to play, it was talked about. No one knew what to call him. And I remember going to watch him. He actually did really well in the tournament. We weren't expecting him necessarily to do so well. But he got, I think it was the semis. We went to go and see him and I was with my business partner walking down Wembley Way. And as we're walking down, there's all these kind of merchandise stands and they're selling Jimmy Brown T-shirts and Brilliant. scarves and flags, all with Jimmy, like holding bottles of HP sauce. And <laughs> it was like, my God. And this to me was the reason I love this campaign, because that is talkability in action. Yeah. You know, it was the amount of media exposure this got compared not to paid for any of that not paid for any of it and it had taken on its own life you know no one was paying someone to produce merchandise which 
actually would have been quite a good idea, but we didn't think of it and we didn't need to in the end. But it was everywhere. It was all over broadcast. Every media was talking about it in all different sort of sections of the media, the sports writers, the people that dealt with marketing. And it was so popular. And, you know, the best bit about that campaign and really the only bit that matters is HP Source saw an increase in sales. And for a brand like that, they're, they're very successful, but they're generally the sales are pretty static year on yeah. year. And it was the biggest increase they'd had for however many years. I'm not going to make up the numbers because I can't remember them. But And so they were over the moon with That's that. Awesome. And it was just such a great campaign. And I still, to this day, speak to Jimmy about it. And he laughs and it was, he always said it was one of the best things he ever did. I'm not even sure if he changed his name back legally. So he might still be Jimmy Brown for all we know. It's fantastic. And there's so many elements in that when I'm thinking about it. It's like, A, the ideas are just ridiculous. The fact that they would sponsor, let you sponsor the ball, then that he would actually say yes to changing his name. Um, and then there's the whole kind of uh, creating the outrage uh, in many ways, similar to, to what happened with Michael Jordan when he, with Nike and like, he's not allowed to wear these trainers, yeah. they're banned. Yeah. Do you have, when you think about PR do you, and these kind of ideas coming up with these concepts, do you have a framework to create this kind of outcome? Yes. So there's certain triggers that, you know, you'll play around with to help lead your brain into an area that creates these ideas that are, are disruptive. So, you know, often you'll look at the conventions of an industry and how things are done. So in that HP example, you know, well, the food industry does it in this way, but what what would you do if you were a sports sponsor? What would you do if you were a car brand? What would you do if you were a music artist? And so by looking at different industries and applying it to the brand you're looking at, often you come up with something that's quite disruptive. Always look at the, the power of an image. And, you know, it's picture paints a thousand words. We've heard that phrase a million times, but it's so true. And a great image will make your coverage go from, you know, three or four lines to pages and pages. And it's looking at the photo, looking at the video, looking at the ways to cut things up. I feel like I'm preaching to the converted, but yeah. that's a really important part of it. So for that campaign, you know, that's why we put him in the brown suit. We had a massive brown. It was one of those sort of yoga type balls that we painted like a snooker ball with the logo on it. Um, so that's sort of one area you look at you look at the usp so what's the one thing you want to say about a brand a product or a service don't try and say too much and i'll always sort of rather than unique look at kind of unusual selling points so say one thing but also try and say something that will surprise or get someone you know again how do you break through people's attention you get them to think you tell them something unusual about a product or a brand that they wouldn't have necessarily taken for granted or already known um, you look at the zeitgeist and what's going on in the world, and that's a real skill. And I started my career at an agency called Lynn Franks, which was the PR agency that Absolutely Fabulous was based on. Lynn, who was the founder of that agency, was an incredible visionary. And what she was able to do was look at trends that were happening in the world, not today, but in a year or in mm -hmm. two years. And, you know, she was talking about climate change and the importance of the environment in the 1990s, I mean, like well ahead of anyone else. But what she'd also do is look at trends on the catwalk. She'd look at colour palettes that were being used in different parts of the world for fashion or for furniture and then apply those learnings and those insights into mass market brands. So always trying to sort of look at where the world's heading, what the mood is That's and stay one step ahead of it. That's quite a fun element to where the HP source campaign ended up with the the fuck frappuccinos. So the fuck frappuccinos was the follow up, the difficult second album, and the insight there was all around. You know, British calves were struggling, and we all love a fry up. You know, it's good for the soul. I'm very glad if you know Tom Skinner, one of the guys from The Apprentice. You know, he has his fry up. I think on a pretty much daily basis and yeah. sort of glamorized the fry up in Dino's calf once again. But, you know, the calf is under threat. And the reason why it was under threat was the invasion of the Costas, the Starbucks, the, the coffee shops that were sort of infiltrating our high streets. And 
basically taking business away from these great British cafes. So we created a campaign with HP funding it and backing it, which was Save the Great British Caf, code name Fuck the Frappuccino. That wasn't really suitable for yeah. the public, but that was our internal code name. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we, we did it all. We created posters for cafes to put in their windows. We even had those sort of brown um, fundraising wristbands that were fashionable at the time. Mm-hmm. We would all, all wear the sort of coloured wristbands to support a charity. We had a petition to save the high street that we took to local councils and MPs and the government. And that, that again, that was a huge success. And then what we did off the back of that was the third campaign where we just wanted to do something re- really unusual and collaborations were starting to become quite popular in the fashion world now. I mean, you can't sort of turn a page of a magazine or go on Instagram without seeing a collaboration. At the time, they weren't so common. So we're like, who could we get HP to collaborate with? We got Paul Smith to collaborate, and HP is named after the Houses of Parliament, British, very British. We created, I think it was created in 1869, might have got that wrong, but so we created 1,869 bottles of these limited edition Paul Smith striped HP bottles of HP sauce, we did a deal with Harrods, which was another client of ours, to stock them within Harrods. And these, I mean, they sold out in seconds. This was before the days of the drop. And sometimes my regret with a lot of these campaigns is they were pre-internet, pre-social media, going crazy. And, yeah. it, you know, you can imagine what it They'd have been on StockX. They'd have been on eBay. Um, but we auctioned, Mohammed Al-Fayed auctioned the very last bottle and it raised thousands and thousands of pounds for charity and... Yeah, I've still got a bottle at home, which I'm saving for... I don't think I can <laughs> use it, but I might be able to flog it for a few quid one day. These are just... I think there's just so much fun here as well. And um, I, you can see, like, in a sea of just shit and meh, like, fun as well is a, is a, is a, is a really nice element in bringing a brand story to life and then getting people talking about it. Because a lot of this stuff is just actually just fun and yeah. hilarious and people can relate to it and get involved with it it's accessible i think the best pr people and the best pr companies understand popular culture and they know how to weave a brand or a product or a person or a service into popular culture and basically become part of that conversation and humor is one way to do it controversy is another sex always sells you know controversy is sometimes invert invented controversy it's not necessarily real controversy but you know, if you can wind up the Daily Mail, get them to put it on the front page of the newspaper saying this should be banned, you know, you're guaranteed to sell out that product, which was a technique we used on numerous occasions, particularly in the video game world. Um, so there's all these different elements, but also, you know, humanity, surprise. There's These are the things that get people to notice brands and products. Yeah, and I think... And a lot of people as well might think that PR is just this kind of like nice to have if you're running a brand. But what you guys did with Compare the Market shows how powerful it can be when it's weaved into advertising and basically the the, the fundamentals of, of the brand. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about your involvement with that? And, and Sure. And how a company that was really struggling used PR and great advertising to turn things around. Sure. I think the first thing to say is PR is critical to any... And it's not just me saying that, although I would say that. I wouldn't be very good at PR if I didn't PR the industry. But yeah. but PR always has to have a business impact. You know, it shouldn't be for vanity. It shouldn't be for the sake of it. If you don't know what that business outcome is that you want, you shouldn't be wasting your money on PR. Um, in the case of Compare the Market... It was a really interesting brief. It was early days of price comparison sites. They were struggling essentially because buying keywords in search are so expensive in that area. So if you wanted to buy the Google AdWords for cheap insurance, insurance comparison, car insurance, home insurance, whatever it might be, those words cost a lot of money. And it was almost impossible for them to make money from it and we'd been doing the PR doing pretty to be honest traditional type stuff getting them in personal finance sections talking to experts on how it's wise to go online and shop around for the best deals but ultimately 
people were still going online and searching cheap car insurance. That was costing them a fortune. So their cost per acquisition was more than the profit they would make from that potential sale. Obviously, it didn't always lead to a sale anyway, which is even worse. So we figured out, and, and they were, you know, bang in trouble. We got called in. I remember a meeting with us, their ad agency, and they were like, we just don't know. We, we've probably got three, six months to turn this around. And we realized the important thing to do was not to fight the same game as everyone else, not to be competing for buying cheap Google AdWords at the best price. We needed to get brand recognition. So we went away and it was actually someone at the ad agency, as myth will have it, to work experience who were sent away to try and save the, save the account, came up with this concept, probably while drunk, Meerkat sounds a little bit like market. Yeah. And that was the starting point of what has become a very, very famous campaign. So, okay, Meerkat sound a bit like market. Where do we go from this? So let's create a character, fictional character called Alexander Orloff. He was this Russian oligarch, Meerkat, who had a website which compared different Meerkats. And he was getting really annoyed because people kept going to his website thinking that it was a cheap car insurance comparison site. <laughs> And that was how this sort of campaign was built. And VCCP, the ad agency, did the most unbelievable job of visualising this character. And he lived in this mansion in Russia. And they, they created the concept that worked for the ad. But we knew we had to make it go beyond the ad. And we needed to make Alexander the Meerkat famous if this was going to work as a strategy. The ad would take it so far. We needed it to enter conversation. And I guess our thinking as a PR agency was, all right, well, let's think about all the things that a fictional meerkat has never, ever done before. And that was our starting point. So he had this catchphrase, simples, which is now, well, we registered, registered it to become the Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year, which was an amazing achievement. Um, we did an at-home shoot with Hello Magazine. No fictional character had ever done an at-home yeah. feature in a magazine. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, we, what else did we do? We did a podcast for him. No fictional character had ever had a podcast. And this was, you know, early days of podcasting, but we managed to persuade David Hasselhoff, Piers Morgan, to appear on this podcast with this meerkat. Um, and then we thought we'd do something with real meerkats. So we approached London Zoo originally to sponsor the meerkat enclosure which they said no to so we landed on this idea of we create a cuddly toy meerkat and any proceeds from the sale of that meerkat would go to the zsl charity and this meerkat became incredibly popular and we noticed that they were going on ebay for like i mean stupid sums of money um and you just couldn't get hold of them they were becoming more and more popular and in the end we used the old strategy of auctioning off the final one and we auctioned off the final one in Harrods um, for, I mean, I, it was thousands and thousands of pounds, but it was so successful that Compare the Market decided that they would give away a meerkat with every policy sold. And that is actually one of my regrets is that we never commercialised that deal. So we took a share of royalties because had we probably wouldn't be sitting here sitting next to you now, we'd have made a fortune. But um, it's it's lovely to... It's it's amazing, really, that people still remember the meerkat. They remember all these little stories and stupid things. You know, at the time, he had more followers on Twitter than Wayne Rooney and all of these kind of big Twitter celebrities, Stephen Fry. You know, he'd beat them all. Um, and that was from nothing. And that was a real example of PR working with advertising to solve a business solution because the most important thing about it was people were now searching for compare the market, not for cheap car insurance which completely transformed their business yeah it's a completely iconic campaign and uh he i mean he's just yeah the longevity as well that that it's had and those little things like even the it's so interesting to hear that story about the the cuddly toys because when you think of compare the meerkat meerkat that's like instantly what you think and it's like just a little thing but it just elevates the whole brand and like builds that brand equity and um, that affinity that people have with it. In it a, differentiates in a them from their competitors. And I think that's the challenge in a crowded marketplace for any product or brand. You know, How do you stand out as being something different, especially in a category that, let's face it, insurance is you know, a panic purchase. It's a reassurance purchase. It's not 
particularly sexy or exciting. No one feels good about buying insurance. You just sort of hope you never have to use it. So you can add excitement to the dullest of products. And actually some of the best things I've ever worked on have been on the face of it, pretty boring categories. And to me, that's more exciting than working on the coolest pair of trainers or, you know, working for a Coca-Cola or someone. You know, I work for all of those kinds of people as well. But actually, you can't necessarily be as creative than you can sometimes when you're just working in a boring category. The key to it is a great client and someone that trusts you, that will listen to your judgment, prepared to take a bit of a risk, always like to try and make people feel uncomfortably, comfortably uncomfortable. Sorry, I said that the wrong way around. Yeah. The wrong way around. No, it's good. It's good. I mean, it's an interesting topic. How do you... How how should brands interact with agencies and, and, and equally the other way around? If you're an agency, what, how do you know what's a good client versus a bad one? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you're trying to essentially find a partnership. And a lot of the work that I do working with the AAR is trying to match clients with agencies. So sometimes it's about skill set. Sometimes it's about looking at what work they've done before and their capabilities in that space. But actually... The softer areas are often just as important or more important. What's the culture? What are the people like? How important of a client are we going to be to this agency? And people buy people and it's, you know, that's where a matchmaking service is, is important. You can go on a website and see amazing work, but it doesn't necessarily reflect what it's like to work with an agency. And I always say to clients, you know, what work do you admire? Who in your category do you think is doing a good job? And then you sort of look at the agencies behind that as a starting point. But you have to have a good fit and you know i pride myself on long-term relationships and i guess that's because i'm not afraid to say no to things which sometimes people are it's a difficult thing to do it's something i've had to train myself to get better in doing because we like to say yes to everything but actually never take stuff on that you don't believe you can totally smash and do a brilliant job of and then you're not going to disappoint people you know where it goes wrong is where you kind of think, oh, figure it out. And you you, know, you hear people talk about, you know, say yes and you worry about how you do it afterwards. I'm, I don't believe in that. I, I mean, sometimes you figure things out, but actually you've got to have confidence and back yourself to be able to do something. Otherwise you shouldn't say yes to doing it in the first place. And from an agency point of view, it's hard running an agency because, you know, you've got a pressure, you've got high overheads, you, you know, you're employing staff, you're sat in big shiny offices clients are the ones that pay the bills without clients you haven't got an agency but you need to make sure that you're resourcing it properly that you're setting yourself up for success again you've got to be able to say no to the things that aren't right for you and when you invest in a client you know the easiest form of growth for any agency is organic growth to achieve organic growth you've got to do a good job you've got to invest the right level of resource put the right people on it do a great job and then work out how to build that client within your agency and if you do great work yeah, I always believed when I was running an agency, it's not that complicated. You know, do great work, everything else follows. You know, you attract the best people who want to work on those campaigns. They do the best work. That leads to doing great campaigns. That attracts new clients. And it all goes in a circle. And it sounds really, really simple and really obvious. But if you put all your focus into doing the best job you can possibly, possibly do, everything will follow. And where it's gone wrong for me at various stages of, running an agency or you know working personally is when you're looking at your excel spreadsheet too much and worried about the numbers and how am i going to make an extra 50 grand 100 grand 500 grand you know once you start just thinking about the numbers and the profit and forget about the work you're doing somehow for me it just doesn't work obviously you've got to keep an eye on the numbers and you can't take your effort completely yeah. but just focus on doing a great job and when i look at you know especially the last few years of my career I've done well, basically, because other people have seen what I've done for, for other people. You know, they've seen the work that I'm doing and they think, oh, we could do with his help. Yeah. That's it. It's as simple as that. It's not from anything else. I've never picked up the phone and made a new business call in my life. It's I've just focused on doing a great job and then knowing how to communicate what you're doing so other people see it. That's yeah. the key. Yeah. Let's talk about some of your relationships. Sure. N namely the one with lord sugar hey guys hope you're enjoying the episode if you are i ask two things of you one let me know in the comments what i can help you with in 2024 and two if you would like to make amazing content and grow a podcast in 2024 everything you're watching or listening to is made by my agency 7xcontent.com check us out now let's get back into the episode 
Sure. How did that come to be? How did that come to be? So in the early days of Frank, um, we had the opportunity to pitch for the Amstrad business and um, we'd, we lost the pitch. I, th I think we just wanted it so badly that we went completely over the top and gave them like a Rolls Royce solution when they effectively didn't need or want it. Um, and we were gutted. Like it, we were three months into the agency. It was a game changer. And to cut a long story short, we picked up the phone and begged. And we were really <laughs> honest with them. You know, we, we just said, look, I think we wanted this so much. We were showing off and we wanted to show you all the things we could do. And, you know, because their feedback is, yeah, great, but we don't need all of that. We just want someone to plug our products. Yeah. And we'd given them, you know, everything, bells and whistles. So I was, I was like, please, please give us the chance. Honestly, this would be a dream brand. And it was a dream brand. It wasn't just the status or the money. It was like I was passionate about it. I, I wanted this bit of business. And they either sort of felt sorry for us or they believed us or a combination. Of, and they gave us the business. And Lord Sugar, who at the time was, I think he was Sir Alan. He might have just been plain old Alan. I can't remember. Yeah. But like my strategy was kind of, we don't, let's just stay away from him. He's got a bit of a reputation for being quite fierce and don't really think there's any advantage of getting to know him. Let's just carry on doing a job, working into the marketing director. As long as he's happy, we don't need to expose ourselves to the big man. And inevitably, at launches for products, press events, I'd see him and he'd be the face of the brand and we'd spend time together. And we just got to know each other just very slowly over a period of time. So when I say I've worked with him for 23 years, you know, we weren't intimately close mm. during that early period. And then I think as he got to see us in action, know what we were doing, got to know me personally, that trust built and... It's just something that's built over time. And, you know, now I look after all areas of his business, all his different businesses. The Apprentice came around, you know, that was 2005. I've worked with him. We're the 18th series about to air at the beginning of next year. And I take the winners of those businesses and effectively transform them from TV personalities into credible business people and help them launch and build their businesses so it's a really really interesting job it's never boring working with him i, I thoroughly enjoy it hopefully you'd say the same yeah what <laughs> what uh what are some of your favorite moments over those 23 years i mean there's been so many memorable moments i think seeing the apprentice take off and he was already a well-known british business person but it, it elevated his status and fame to the next level and that's you know the reason why he wanted to do that show was about inspiring people young people and helping them understand business and become entrepreneurial and prior to that you know we'd been going around schools and talking to 500 people or universities speaking to a thousand people this was a way to take that to the next level and seeing that work and over the years build and build has been a real highlight there's been some great personal moments of being with him to celebrate various milestones, I guess most notably when he got made a Lord and I was at the sort of ennoblement ceremony in the House of Lords. That was special seeing, you know, I, I never take for granted being able to go on his boat or fly on his planes or be in the back of AMS one or all of those kind of stuff, you know, is special, I think. And it's great to see someone that's achieved such high levels of success I find inspiring and motivating, especially because, you know, he's in his 70s, he doesn't need to work and he still does. So yeah. I, I find that quite motivating. And then there's been plenty of shit as well. You know, we've yeah. had to, you know, he'll often sort of send me an email and it will just say, put your helmet on. <laughs> and that, that means, you know, there's trouble coming our way. And I guess I do enjoy that crisis management side of things as well but you know probably they're the bits i remember the most because they're the most intense and we've shared several moments which i don't think either of us will ever forget can you give an example no no <laughs> no there's been of course i can um i mean there's been plenty of things that i can't necessarily talk about or wouldn't want to talk about but you know often the media i think one of the things social media has done is that any comment anything that's said 
can just get blown up out of all proportion and become a crisis you know, overnight when it's not really a crisis in the first place. So there's been plenty of those incidents. I think when, when he got made a lord, um, it was Gordon Brown who made him a lord and it was, he became the enterprise czar um, for business. And it was really like recognition of his ability to speak in plain English and communicate and motivate people about business in a way that lots of people can't do because they overcomplicate it. They use big words, they intellectualise it. That's not his style. He's very straight and direct. And anyway, he got made a lord. I think it was Jeremy Hunt at the time was the media and culture secretary. And he just made such a fuss. You can't do this. You're a TV personality. It's a conflict of interest. And I remember the day it all kicked off. It was a mad, mad day because we were filming the final of The Apprentice that night. And The Apprentice is filmed several months in advance, but the final, no one knows who's won it. They, they take it down to two winners. And on the day before it goes on air, we're in a TV studio. He decides that morning who the winner is. Um, and then it, that way the secret's sort of kept um, and it was that day. It was the, that was the day it all kicked off. For some reason, I can't really remember why, he was having lunch with Simon Cow, and I was trying to get hold of him, and I kept phoning him, I kept phoning him, and he was just like, I can't remember. He was basically, they were comparing Rolls Royces. They had the same car and spec, and he was more, yeah. more interested, and I just couldn't get his attention. Yeah. I was like, I really, really need to speak to you. And we were trying to... And then he sort of eventually starts looking at his phone and everything, could see what was going on. And we had the filming and I just said to him, look, just focus on filming and we'll sit down afterwards. And his brain was exploding. My brain was exploding. He was trying to focus. I was trying to keep it all away from him and just deal with it. And the filming finished and it was the wrap party for The Apprentice. Everyone was there having a barbecue and drinking. And I remember just me and him sat in a corner trying to sort of figure out how we're going to deal with it. And we went to bed that night, like, not together, I should add, um, <laughs> two or three in the morning. And, like, just I'd, honestly, I felt like I was going to have a brain hemorrhage. But so those sort of moments can be really intense. And it, it wasn't even, like, no one had done anything wrong. It was just when the media gets you and they're onto you and they see headlines and they see sales and they see clicks, you know, they will just go, go, go. And it's... What, you, what are you trying to do it. in those scenarios? Are you trying to get your message out or...? Yeah, you're trying to calm the situation down. I mean, I guess, you know, whilst these things in the greater scheme of life don't really matter, there was a chance that the BBC would pull The Apprentice over it. Yeah. Um, or he would be, have to not take the title. And we didn't want either of those. Um, so we're just trying to be rational, calm it down. Often the best form of defence is is not to respond. And in this sort of instance, you've got hundreds of media phoning you, emailing you, direct messaging you, you know, every form of way they can get you. They're trying to do it. And you're just trying to keep them away, calm it down. In this instance, you know, we were trying to actually find out whether Jeremy Hunt had a point, which he didn't really, but we didn't know that at the time. So we we're just trying to calm things down as much as possible. And in the end, they actually changed the date of The Apprentice so that it didn't conflict with the period of time that I can't even remember elections or something. I, it, was, it was a while back, but there was a compromise situation, but obviously he retained his role with The Apprentice. He retained his lordship, so it all sort of worked out okay. But yeah, that was a tough day. Yeah. What makes him special, do you think, as an entrepreneur? Um, he's got an incredible eye for detail. He knows how to spot a trend. He understands products inside out knows how to take a concept that on the face of it might be quite expensive um, and unattainable and produce it and manufacture it in a way that becomes affordable and mass. And he did that time and time again with Amstrad, but also with things like Sky, when Murdoch had the concept of Sky but couldn't figure out how to produce these satellite dishes. You know, I remember him saying it's, it's essentially it's a dustbin lid. And he was like, he said, yes to Murdoch, I can help you produce these at an affordable cost and then he figured out how to create a satellite dish at a price that made it viable for for sky and that is a, a, a huge skill he's very visionary in that respect um but i think he's you know he's also talked about over the years things where 
he's got involved in things he didn't understand, like the stock market, and lost money. So he always sticks to what he knows. I mean, actually, most of his money comes from property investments, and he understands property, and, you know, he's stuck to that area. But he's, you know, there's lots of ways... I think he's successful beyond his financial success. You know, he's got incredible family values. He's a brilliant father, grandfather. He knows how to balance life, enjoy all the trappings of success, whilst at the same time running multiple businesses. Um, and it's just that drive and that hunger and that ambition that I think he's one of these people that, you know, like a Rupert Murdoch, will just continue working and working and working because I think without a he'd probably be the first to admit it'd be a bit lost. Yeah, yeah. When you get these apprentice winners, what do you, what do you tell them? Um, I mean, it's different for every winner. And, you know, whilst I've done the winner's speech sort of 17 times, everyone is slightly different. But it's really trying to explain to them how to make that transition from being on a TV show, which is watched by 10 million people, to setting up and launching a business. Even though you've won the show, sometimes you can feel like you've lost because you're seeing the people that came second, third, fourth, going to the premiere in Leicester Square, opening a nightclub in Colchester, and <laughs> doing all the fun stuff, you know, the influencers, sort of free gifts. And they're, they're sort of having to set up a business. And it's about trying to explain to them how you got to think about long-term success. And it's the same with any form of management. You know, when, when you have talent that comes out of shows, and I'm not comparing the shows because they're different, but, you know, a Love Island, a Big Brother, a Married at First Sight, whatever it might be, you know, any idiot can make you short-term money. You say yes to everything, you take that window, and you just cash in as quickly as you possibly can. When you want longevity on those shows or The Apprentice, you have to think about longer-term success. And the way that they're going to have long, longer-term success is by building a business and building a business that makes money and building their reputation as being credible business people. You know, I think the thing with The Apprentice, because it's a factual entertainment show and it's, you know, it's caricatures of people. The first thing people always say to you is, they're all idiots. They're, yeah. and I could do it. I could do it. Mm. You know, the cream rises to the top and by the time you've got a winner, they are brilliant business people and very credible and know what they're doing. So you have to keep their heads on their shoulders. So I'll explain to them all the downsides of what fame can bring, all the upsides of, you know, how to focus and do things in the right way. Um, and then depending on what their business is, you know, how we're going to get there and achieve a strategy that's going to make them credible and successful in their chosen field so it's always interesting for me because every, every winner is different has a different business different personality um so yeah it's it's the speech is not a script there's variations on it yeah who's who are some of your favorites that have won the show yeah um oh, it's like asking who my favorite child <laughs> is um i mean there's been some great characters over the years you know tim campbell was the first ever winner and you know, lovely, lovely bloke, now aide to Lord Sugar. Um, so he'll always hold a special place in my heart. Lee McQueen, who won the, I think it was the fourth series, I've invested in one of his businesses. So, you know, he, he's a great guy. Um, Tom, inventor Tom. Leah, who's got the um, surgical clinics, non-surgical clinics, Dr. Leah. Mark Wright was a great character who had a performance marketing agency, which he sold for nearly 10 million pounds. Marnie, the current winner is great. Um, really enjoyed working with Harpery, who had the Oh So Young brand. I'm bound to have left someone off that will get really upset. Ricky <laughs> Martin is brilliant. Um, he's got a great business in recruitment, scientific oh, nice um, medical recruitment. So they're, they're, they're all great characters in their own right. Some not so much. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that yeah, a lot a, a lot of people do write them off and say, and kind of caric uh, say they're caricatures. And I think the show doesn't help them in some ways because it it does kind of accentuate the those elements of their personalities. But when you reel off the list, there's a hell of a lot of uh, phenomenal entrepreneurs there. Yeah, there are. I mean, it's you know, I think what you don't realise about that show, or maybe you do, is just the intensity of the filming. It's obviously edited. It's um, but there are some brilliant characters and I know like Lord Sugar will say, 
you know, you could put some of the most successful business people on the planet on that show in that environment, you know, with those scenarios and they would struggle. You know, it, it's very easy to watch the team. It's a bit like when you're watching a quiz show and you know all the answers and you're like, yeah, I could do this. When you're actually under the lights and you've got the intensity and the pressure that is built up and manufactured to a certain degree, you know, you, I think a lot of brilliant business people would struggle on that show. Let's switch back to the PR for a second. Are there any PR stunts or things that you wish you could have done that got left on the cutting room table? or stuff that you see other people do, and you go, I wish I'd have done that? Uh, it's hard to think of a specific campaign. I mean, I, I love seeing great PR stunts. Um, but I've been fortunate enough to be involved in a lot of the things that I love. I mean, I think for me, one of the greatest PR stunts of all time was what Red Bull did with the jump from space. And that was a campaign I would have loved to have been a part in. It took years and years to plan. And it was a, a global moment. Um, where the whole world was just fixed on this guy jumping from space. And I thought th that was amazing, absolutely brilliant. Um, over the years, you know, I I've done a lot of work with Paddy Power, which brilliant client that enabled us to take risks and do stupid stuff and grab attention. And there was work that other agents, you know, they work with lots of agencies and it was sort of best idea wins. So I've seen lots of brilliant stunts for Paddy Power done by other agencies that I really like. Sometimes it's just the, you know, the simplest and stupidest ones. I love the one where um, two guys from the PR agency dressed up as Daft Punk or put the Daft Punk helmets on, went to the Brits and then pulled down their trousers on the red carpet to unveil yeah. their Paddy Power green <laughs> lucky pants. You know, like yeah. so simple, but global headlines. You know, I love that kind of stuff. I love PR stunts that are just really simple, make you smile, and you just think, yeah, I wish I'd have done that. Yeah. Who do you think are the best brands for it? I mean, any brand that's prepared to take a bit of a risk, and, you know, that's when you asked me the question earlier about what makes a good client. It's a client that will listen, that will trust you, that will work with you, and will take a bit of a risk. You know, I think when I think about some of the best work I've done in my career, it's basically a good client that's I've been able to sort of persuade to do something that they might feel slightly uncomfortable about doing. And, you know, even with a paddy power that's well known for taking risks, it's always calculated risks and, you know, things that are dangerous in inverted commas to do should always be thought through. So, you know, with, in a case of paddy power, it was often, you know, will this get us a fine? Will it get us a ban? Will it land us in prison? You know, sometimes the answer to all three of those questions is yes. But you think, okay, well, if the fine is this and if the prison is sort of a night behind bars and a slap on the wrist and the reward is millions and millions of pounds of coverage and everyone talking about us and huge impact on the business, then it's worth taking that risk. But you've always got to think it through, all the scenarios. I mean, we did, in the early days of, of the agency, we did a lot of work for video games and it was always controversial stuff. Um, and you'd always have to go through that scenario planning of like what could go wrong and have a backup plan. And it, you, you should never do these things without thought and being irresponsible. But at the same time, I, th I think a lot of great ideas get killed because people overthink it and they worry too much. And sometimes you just got to go with your gut and do stuff. And as long as you've to a degree thought it through and the downsides, then don't be scared to be brave and what's the worst that's going to happen? It won't work. Yeah, it's great. It's great advice. What has been your lowest moment doing this? Um, I would like to think I'm quite a resilient person. Um, but we all have our sort of moments. I was speaking to someone today, actually. I think w when we started the agency, we had, I don't know, seven, eight years of continual growth. We then hit a bit of a tough patch. That was quite hard, I think because we weren't used to not growing. We almost took it for granted. And, you know, we just had to dig deep and keep going and get it back, which we did. Um, we launched an agency in New York after having launched in various different Australia and Manchester and Glasgow. But New York was tough. And we didn't actually, it wasn't a failure. So really, I mean, it didn't lose money, but it was a big distraction from everywhere else. And other, other bits of the business were suffering and we 
made the decision to shut that down. That was tough, um, tough decision. Um, don't know. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I've always been someone that doesn't get too high on the highs, too low on the lows. So, of course, there's been low moments. And for everyone, you know, you, you, nothing is plain sailing. It's always a, a sort of a journey of ups and downs. But I'll never let those down moments drag me down for too long and it's a bit like I always think a bit like a football team like you know sometimes a team just wins even when they play terribly they just somehow they just get that result and equally they can go through a losing streak where you know they play brilliantly but just don't get that break and let in a goal in the last minute of extra time or whatever it might be it's a bit like that running a business but the key is you've got to get back into that winning pattern as quickly as you can and not beat yourself up too much and not overthink and overanalyze and just once you're in that sort of zone of just success 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 the you sort of the bits that are tough just bounce away and you do have to be resilient in working in marketing it's it's not plain sailing for anyone you know even the most successful people on the planet will have moments of doubt moments where things have gone wrong um and complete cliche but yeah, as long as you learn that lesson from where it's gone wrong, then you just carry on. Yeah. Let's talk about what you're working on now. How do you spend your time? Because you're not day-to-day at the agency anymore, are you? No. So after 20 years of running the agency and after two years of really thinking about it day in, day out, I made the decision to step back um, and alleviate myself of day-to-day responsibilities. I'm still a shareholder in the business, but I'm not involved at all in terms of the running of the agency business. So um, I set up a consultancy business called Andrew Block and Associates. I tried to figure out what I enjoyed, what I was good at, what I wasn't good at, how could I, how I could make money out of the bits I was good at. And now I have, I guess, what you would call a portfolio career, which is split into a few different areas. I then um, sit on the board of several different companies, mainly marketing services, agencies do a lot of work in talent management so looking after predominantly business people high profile business people and booking them to do speaker events commercial opportunities basically monetizing their brand um, and then I kind of set myself the challenge of spending 20% of my time giving back um, and I've found a way to do that where I can help as many people as possible in the minimum amount of time, I guess. So I work for the Prince's Trust. So I sit on their business launch group, which is a bit like a kind of friendly dragon's den. So people that have been through um, mentorship with the Prince's Trust will eventually get to panel where they present their ideas. And it's my role together with others to assess if that business is viable and whether it's worthy of investment from the trust. So that's fun. I mentor at places like the School of Communication Arts, which is the most awarded ad school in the world, the School of Marketing, um, sit on the panel for super brands, work with Variety, the children's charity on their show business awards, work for a record label called Big Community Records, which was founded by the former CEO of Google, which is all about helping underprivileged black kids from poor areas get into the music industry, use technology to sort of beat the system without major record label support. So. It's amazing. Can we talk about um, how you thought about taking on all this work in terms of something you, you said to me uh, just before we started was that you wanted to work less but earn more. How did you come to 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 figure that out or and have you been able to do it? Yes. I didn't actually, I wanted to work smarter and less because I wanted to create time to spend with my kids and my loved ones. And um, actually earning more wasn't part of the plan necessarily. I I feel like everyone always needs a goal, a target, something they've got to yeah. aim to. So I set myself the challenge of just earning the same as I was earning previously. Because for me, gotcha. that I don't know, if I could achieve the same work a little bit less, that would equal success. It wasn't a particularly well thought out yeah. plan. I'm not someone who sits there and makes three-year, five-year plans. Actually, my barometer for success is just, am I happy? Which yeah. sounds really naive and basic, but 
if I wake up, wake up every morning, get out of bed, happy, go to bed, happy, that's it. I don't need to overthink it any more than that. Um, that's my plan and it's working. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I sort of knew that running an agency was, I just felt there was an entrepreneurial itch I wasn't scratching. I didn't particularly enjoy certain aspects of the job, the sort of people recruitment side of things. So I knew I didn't want to set up another agency that I was going to be running day to day. Um, I wanted to kind of do it on my own terms. And then I figured out, you know, what am I good at? What am I not good at? And I realized my value is really, I've got a great black book. I'm connected. I like helping people. Um, I don't like people stuff, admin, HR. I don't like writing lengthy documents. I don't like being a huge strategist. I like to, I'm action orientated. I want people to succeed. I love pulling other people up. And so that's how I sort of figured it out. And, but I didn't have a, I wasn't scared to walk away from what I was doing because I guess putting it crudely, like it didn't really matter. This wasn't retirement, yeah. like don't get me wrong, but I was very, very fortunate that I didn't need an income. If I didn't make a penny, didn't I wouldn't be very happy, but it wouldn't make any difference to my life. So I was quite free to just see how it went. And I... So the day that I left, I just did a post on LinkedIn, which, yeah, I'm not one really to reflect. I don't. I just get on and I'm always on to the next thing and next thing. I think that's a classic sort of entrepreneurial trait. But I took a moment to sort of reflect on my 20 years at the agency and some of the highlights. And I just sort of put at the end of it, you know, don't really know what I'm going to do next. I'd like to look at opportunities sort of inside and outside of the PR world. I'd like to do a bit of consulting, maybe take on a couple of advisory roles, non-exec positions. I'd like to give something back, something along those lines. And then my phone just started to ring. And it was, it actually really disarmed me because I was planning to take at least a few months off. I wanted to go away with my two boys and travel and just have some fun. It was the summer. But my phone rang and it was from people that yeah, some of them I knew, some of them I knew of, some of them I'd never heard of that had just sort of read what I'd written and were like, I think you might be able to help me with this. Could you help with that? Could you?" Do? And I said yes to everything. I actually spent about a year just saying yes, um, which was brilliant, but terrible um, because by the end of the year, I was the busiest man in the world and the plan to sort of slow down had completely failed. But it enabled me to realise which bits I liked, which bits I didn't. So sort of year two of being on my own, I started to consolidate that a bit, let certain things sort of drift away and build on other bits. And then it's sort of as I've evolved in the last, I'm coming up to, I don't know, be nearly four years of doing this. I'm, I've sort of just got my flow. I know what I enjoy. I'm not scared to say no to anything. I say no to probably nine out of 10 things that come my way just to make sure that the things I say yes to and the things I'm already committed to, I do a really good job of. And I, I'm loving it. I've just found a whole new... I've always loved what I do. I've always thrown myself into every day. But at the moment, I feel like I, I genuinely feel so lucky to be doing something that... It's not easy, but comes very naturally to me. Get paid to do it, be able to do a good job of it, and just build it on my own terms, not having to answer really to anyone else. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a lucky, privileged position to be in. Yeah, it's awesome. And I think it just shows the value as well of, of a lot of what you're doing is obviously it comes from like the 20 years of experience, but a lot of it now is like connecting people. It's all about connecting people because I realized that was, I guess my value is, you know, I, I'd always have an answer of someone, do you know someone that can do this? Do you know the right person to speak to that? How could I get this person to, and I, I don't know, I've just years and years of doing it. I just built up this knowledge and these contacts. And I'd always, I've always prided myself on my integrity. I, I like helping people. It's part of my nature. And you realize that that sort of comes back to reward you. It's not why I did it, but it's just a natural part of what happened. So I just found a way, I guess, to monetize what I did very naturally anyway. And people trusted my judgment and my opinion. And sure, it came from, 
you know, not just the 20 years of running the agency, the years before that as well. So it's not something, I don't think someone straight out of college could do what I'm doing now because there's no way they'd have that level of connections and expertise. But when you have done something for a number of years, really, I've just found a way to monetize what I was doing anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, I think it's definitely uh, an, an underlooked thing is people sometimes don't realize the value of their no. networks. No, I didn't. I mean, I look back and I think of all the stuff I've done over years and years of favors, connections and never made any money out of that, which is fine. I mean, that's, there's nothing wrong with that because I was making money elsewhere. But yeah, once you figure out a way to be able to make money and build a business out of what your core strengths are, that, that's the answer. And what I say no to is the things that I don't enjoy or I'm not convinced I'll do a good job on. And in turn, that frees you up to have more time to do more of what you're good at. And really, you know, I've realized, especially in the last few years, the most valuable commodity you have is your time. And you've got to protect that. And the more you protect your time, the more successful you can be. Yeah. Let's do some quick fire questions. Uh oh. If someone was thinking of starting a PR agency, what would you tell them? Do it. It's the short answer. People, look, there's no shortage of marketing agencies in the world. We don't need another PR agency, but there is room for everyone. But if you're going to do it, be different, have a point of view, stand out. Don't just copycat what others have done. Yeah. Best thing you've done with your money? Oh, God. Probably bought too many pairs of expensive trainers or stupid cars. Um, but I've also, on a serious note, like, I guess the most important thing for me is being able to set up a life for my kids and know that whatever happens to me, they've got the best possible start in life. So I've been able to make enough money that, you know, I don't mean that I'm going to give it to them, especially if they're listening. I'm definitely not going to give it <laughs> to them. But I think that's important for me is just knowing that they're secure and they don't have to ever worry about anything, but they will be getting a job. Yeah. Worst thing you've ever done with your money? Trainers and cars <laughs> or women. <laughs> don't know. Kindest thing someone's ever done for you? I don't know. That's a really... I'm sure a lot of people have done a lot of kind things. I, I like people, I don't like it when people take things for granted. So I'm very, very happy to help people invest time. When people abuse that generosity, it doesn't mean I won't continue to do it because you don't do something to receive something back. But often, you know, the, the nicest thing for me is just getting an email or a WhatsApp or, you know, a small sort of box of chocolates or something or a card just to say, thank you that meant a lot or when you hear sort of secondhand someone's complimented you for a job you've done that I think that's real that's really kind and sometimes people do take 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 and they never give anything back and that sometimes leaves you feeling a bit like oh, do I really want to keep helping this person yeah so. box of chocolates is in the post <laughs> <laughs> subtle on <aren't> say <laughs> top three books top three books. I mean I'm not much of a book reader to be honest and i'm much more about listening to podcasts and reading articles and just consuming stuff via social media but um i read the last few books i've read i read shoe dog which is the, the nike story which i just think is a brilliant business story wrapped up in sort of human interest and entertainment and a real great example of fighting against adversity to achieve the ultimate success and nike is one of my favorite brands so it's brilliant to sort of read that not a new book but brilliant um i'm halfway through a book so i feel like i shouldn't really talk about it um called beautiful pr by sophie atwood she runs a pr company um and i'm not going to talk about it because i've finished it but i'm enjoying that actually but it's about purposeful pr and how pr can put some good into the world so that's really good and then i'd but the book I read before that was Animal House by James Brown, who James was the founder of Loaded, um, spent far too many evenings on press trips and up to no good in the golden heyday of the magazine sort of era in the 90s. And it's a story just about how he took his obsession of music and celebrity and basically became a journalist and 
built one of the most successful magazines of, of all time. And that is a brilliant read, but particularly sort of poignant because, you know, I was a small part of it during during the crazy days. That sounds like a great one. I'm going to read that. Uh, what's next for you? Don't know. See who picks up the phone tomorrow. Um, don't know. I, well, I do know what's next. I'm, I am working on building a network of agencies um, to invest in that, in my mind, sort of cover off the things that every brand needs when they're looking for communications agencies. So creative PR, social content, web build, brand development, and then also a solution for brands that can't necessarily afford an agency but want the best possible individual to help them out. So I'm just working on creating that network to set that up and launch that in the new year. Yeah. What are you searching for? In life, happiness. Happiness, health and world peace. Love it. And where can people find you? Pretty easily. I mean, you can Google my name, um, Andrew Block. You'll find my website um, on t on X. Can't call it Twitter anymore. At Andrew Block on Instagram at Blockstagram, on TikTok at Andrew Block on LinkedIn at Andrew Block. I mean, generally, just not that difficult to find.